Um, your dad carried around a camera, right? My dad always had a camera. He um, went to, uh, for some reason, I think he went to Allen University for a short time and took photography. And I've never seen him without a camera. He had it in the war. He was in World War II and took lots and lots of pictures that I have the privilege of holding. And um, he's always had a camera. So I've had a camera since I was nine years old or something. Okay, so I know a lot of you may know um, Daphne from acting, but we're going to talk about that later. Um, why Doors? What was the appeal? There's a bunch of things you walk past every day. Trees, people, faces, hands. But why Doors? What, what kind of inspired you uh, in that way? If you think about it, Doors are a metaphor for life because they represent so many different things in life. They represent adventure and curiosity and, and the next passage in your life. It, it, they represent so many things. And what I was trying to do in capturing doors is to get you to pay attention to the details in your life because the journey is the fun part of life, not the destination. I mean, you make a, eh, I'm gonna go there. Okay, what's between here and there? Same thing on your tombstone. What's between the two dates? It's the dash. It's the details of your life that make it interesting, challenging, worth living. Nice. Yeah, I really like that. When I was reading uh, on you and doing some doing my digging, I, I found that very, very interesting. Um, but now we have a little pick em, okay? So uh, I'm going to say some things, and you pick one or the other, okay? Okay. Okay. Red wine or white wine? Red. Marvin Gaye or Al Green? Marvin. Respect or love? Respect. Dancing or With singing? With love. With love, okay. <laughs> uh, dancing or singing? Dancing. Um, singing. Brunch or sing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll take a little bit of both. Yeah. Uh, brunch or dinner? Brunch. If you had to cook something, in the oven or on the stove? Stove. Miles Davis or Louis Armstrong? Miles Davis. Oh, okay. Now, you, you, I know you're, um, you're a very, very avid uh, jazz listener. Um, now, you grew up in what's considered Harlem. No, uh, no, no. Manhattan. Yes. Okay. You grew All up in... of Manhattan is not Harlem. That's true. Very true. <laughs> I'm on the west side. <laughs> yeah. Um, In the Amsterdam houses, uh, known as the projects. Yes. Um, so you, you, you grew up there. Was that where the influence of jazz music came from? I think in my household, my daddy always had a camera and he always had a record player. And uh, we listened to a lot of music. And running around with folks in junior high and high school, I listened to a lot of jazz in the house and in clubs. I had my 16th birthday at the Blue Note and uh, MJQ pay played me happy birthday. So I thought that was pretty cool. I love jazz because I just love the feeling that you get when you're really listening to it. Wow. Yeah, my, uh, my grandmother uh, grew up in Harlem uh, before moving to Long Island and. Uh, she got to experience uh, a lot of the, the artists that were coming up at that time. Um, 
your, your family um, actually came from South Carolina. South Carolina. Yep. Uh, but you, you know, you were born in New York. But you, you know, your mother um, was an activist. Was you know, a lot of times when you think of activists, you think of a lot of things that happened in the South. Was that where your roots kind of came from in terms of getting involved with things going on in the community? I never lived in the South. Okay. My mother um, was an activist mostly, as I knew her, in New York. Okay. And it was neighborhood activism. It was general activism. It was church-related activism. Um, she was a person who always found a purpose in what she was doing. And fulfilling her purpose was kind of her motivation for living. What, what did she teach you through her activism, through just being involved? What did she teach you? She taught me um, how to try my best to be non-judgmental, how to listen and react to what you hear, go with knowledge of what you're doing, and be do it positively. Don't try to tear anything down. Rather, build it up. Tear down the things that should not have been built in the first place, but mostly building up things, raising people to a higher level of, of love. And she was just this wonderful, wonderful, giving, responsible for everybody in the neighborhood woman. Yeah, I definitely had a, a few of those uh, um, people that look at, looked after me. Uh, my parents weren't around, uh, but pop now and then. And, and, and so you, you, got, you got exposed to a lot um, as a kid. You even attended uh, the March on Washington. And yep. really to speak to someone that actually attended. Um, can, you, you go. <laughs> what was, can you take me through that time and, and leading up to that day, what was the day like? Were you anxious? And, and just to put in perspective, that being there wasn't the actual, wasn't actually the most safest place to be for a kid. Uh, my you... mother wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And to my recollection, she did go, except uh, after my father died, we were going through some photos and she was sitting on a bench next to my father in this photo and she looked really pissed off <laughs> i said what were you so pissed off about she said he told me i couldn't go to the march on washington oh i had no idea she didn't go we went as a as a church group oh okay. but i was i was only 15 mm -hmm. so it wasn't that i knew exactly what was going on i knew that there were a gathering of black people for rights, for voting rights and for um, opportunities. And we were at that time followers of Martin Luther King. And it just all culminated into, well, this is what you do. You get on the school bus and you ride down there with your people and you present yourself and you stand in your truth and I wasn't afraid. There was nothing to be afraid of that I knew of. Uh, I had known um, a couple of people who had taken those Mississippi bus rides 
uh, our minister for our church was one of the uh, Freedom Riders. And, I, and he was white. And he went down there and it was a hard time, but he got back. And we've always been, I guess, in tune and in touch with what was going on. So it was just a part, it was just like getting up and going to school. So you get up and you demonstrate. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's truly amazing. So what, what you know, so you, you have your, your mother who's involved in different things going on in the community. You, you have your, your father who's a military veteran um, and still teaching you valuable lessons. So what attracted you to, to wanting to be a teacher at a younger age? Uh, at the time that I was going to college, there were not a lot of examples <laughs> of black women doing much else but teaching. And I thought that was an honorable thing to do. And if you had to have a job, I guess that was a job you go to college to try to do. And um, it didn't last long. <laughs> it took me about two semesters to say, no, no. I be a teacher, <laughs> not in the traditional sense. I'll, I'll teach some other kind of way. I realized very early in my life that I was not someone who was comfortable with a daily routine. I, I have so many gifts that God has given me and my creative usually spills over. So I can't, I can't live my life knowing that for the next 30 days, I have exactly the same thing to do every day. I probably shoot myself in the head. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, miss you too much. Uh, is, is that how you avoid putting yourself into a box uh, creatively, you know, kind of always having something new to, to look forward to? I'm nosy. I, I'm curious. <laughs> I, was, I was a very curious child. And, and I like to find out how and why. So everything that I get ready to do, it's the adventure of the journey. And I just throw all caution to the wind, jump in with two feet and say, okay, now, what do I need to know? And I go about figuring it out, figuring out how, how to put up my first photo show in a gallery, how to publish my first book myself, how to market, how everything had a journey and a learning experience. And that was the joy of it. Not when it goes up on the wall, somebody likes it or not likes it, it's okay with me. It was the journey getting there that is exciting. And once it's on the wall, it's like, where else can it be? It can be in note cards. It, oh, I keep talking about these trips that I take. Let's write it down. Create a book. Oh, this guy doesn't want to publish the book, but he gave me lots of good clues. Hmm, I'll publish it myself. Finding out about ISBN numbers. How, all sorts of things. I just enjoy the journey. Yeah, that's truly amazing. Uh, because uh, it, it, speaking of your book, uh, I, I heard you speak about it before, and it was really interesting to me. Um, you went to an individual, I guess, and, and you were talking about publishing a book. I don't want to tell the story because okay. I, I'm, you, you tell the story. 
a friend of mine um, had published a book and she said, oh, well, I'll introduce you to my editor. And uh, I went and I made a little mock-up what I wanted the book to be. I spent a lot of time making this mock-up and printing the pages and deciding what font to use and how it was arranged. And I got there and he very nicely went through it all. And he said, so, um, would you like some notes? I said, oh yes. <laughs> so I wrote down. He says, first of all, we don't want to publish this book because it needs to be sold in a gift shop, not in a um, bookstore. Nobody walks into a bookstore looking for a book on doors unless they're building something. Um, plus, the way you have it arranged, if you did this way and this way and this chapter, and if you didn't do this and you did, let me see what that looks like. I said, Psh, yep, I went home, redid the whole thing, Gave him a copy and he said, yes, this is very good, but we're not gonna publish it. I said, okay, thank you. I love your notes. <laughs> and it just made the book so much better, just listening and, and taking the advice of somebody who knows what they're doing. Wow. <laughs> no doesn't always mean no. Right. Wow. Yeah. Uh... Wow, that's that's truly inspiring. A lot of times, people hear no and they they, they think it's the end of the journey. And you it means figure it out. That's what no means. So you, so I'm I'm still kind of covering some things here. So you, how do you come to to singing at places like Carnegie Carnegie Hall and the Lincoln Center? How does how does that happen? Um, in junior high school, I joined the All City Junior High School Chorus. And it was a group of kids. I went with some folks from school and it was a Saturday thing. And it was fabulous. John Motley was our leader and he presented music that I just, it just bloomed my soul. It was just wonderful. And they were, we were divided into four different categories and I was in the alto section and I learned all this fabulous music and the chorus said, okay, next week we're singing at Carnegie Hall. Okay. <laughs> so we go sing at Carnegie Hall and then, okay, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Oh, we're going to be singing at Lincoln Center. Okay. You know, you just go sing with 300 other people. And it was just so uplifting to me. I really, really enjoyed it. And even today, at Christmas time, I try to find a place where they're doing the Messiah, the Handel's Messiah. Because one of the songs that we learned, and I know the alto part of, is the Hallelujah Chorus. And it, it just brings me to tears to sing that. I just love it. Love it, love it, love it. Now, were your, was your family supporting you at this time? Coming to your shows? maybe showing up every now and then. Was this, was, was this kind of like a, a big deal for you? Because I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, you know, they didn't discourage me, but right. they weren't all into it. Right. Yeah, she's, she's busy. She's doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time my father came to see me act. Oh. 
because I was in um, something called the Group Theater Workshop that was run by Robert Hooks, who, um, I mean, it was a little Saturday thing as well. And we had fabulous screenwriters like Douglas Turner Ward, and we had movement coaches like Barbara and Tear and there were lots of people in that group who went on to be, I mean, Huggy Bear. Oh. <laughs> I've been working with him since I was in high school. And Hattie Winston. And, I mean, there were just so many people. And we had little scene workshops and we would go to playgrounds and perform and we would do Shakespeare in the park, but we were doing the teenage version of something that we had created and it was singing and dancing and moving around and I for um, one performance that they set up a, a actual performance in the theater it was at the Cherry Lane Theater and we had to do a scene a monologue and I studied my lines and I did and it was the first time that I had performed as a single person in front of an audience. And my parents came. And it was the first time my father ever saw me act. Maybe not, maybe in the house. He saw me acting up. But um, <laughs> the scene that I did was seen. And he was mesmerized and just the esteem that I got from my dad from that performance was very heartwarming. That's beautiful. And, and so, you, so you're doing all these things. When did you start to realize that you're, you're a leader, right? Because you then become the senior president of, the, of, of your class. How, how, when do you start to kind of embody this role? When did you realize you were a leader? Probably in church, um, probably, youth activities. I'm not a patient person. <laughs> so my leadership came before frustration. <laughs> so we're going to do this or we're going to do this. <laughs> you know, it's mostly my thing. Okay, let's do it. And that makes a leader. You put one foot in front of the other and you're a leader. And if you can convince folks to follow you, all the better. But, um, was always in charge of something. I'm a bossy ass chick. Uh, my older brother was, I mean, he's probably still pissed off at me. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just a bossy chick. My husband even calls me boss lady. The legendary Mr. Tim Reed. Yeah. <laughs> and he says it so snidely. I don't know that I like it. <laughs> but, but you don't strike me as the type of person that plays victim. Oh, no. I ain't got time for victimhood. What a waste of time. <laughs> no. No. If something needs to be done, let's do it. If you're not going to do it, okay, bye. I, I'll, something over here needs to be done. So I, I'm not, I don't hang around for chatting. The boards that I've been on, um, if it's a board where they keep trying to decide something and can't come, I, uh, I gotta go. <laughs> if y'all gonna talk about this for a year, I'm not playing. No. Like, so uh, I usually push. Should, shouldn't worry, right? Your two words you, you kind of got rid of. Yeah, no, don't use them. Should, 
Either you do or you don't. Whether you should or not makes no difference to anybody. And worry is really a waste of energy. If you can do something about it, do it. If you can't do something about it, put it down. Somebody will take care of it. I love that. Worry? What for? I'm going to keep that in my pocket if you don't mind. Go right ahead. That's why I'm here. Pass along pocket change. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so then, so you have all these things going for you. Yeah. Uh, then some things happen when you get, so first of all, I want to I explain how Daphne got to uh, Northwestern. She went <laughs> on National Merit Scholarship. Okay, so she, she gets a scholarship to Northwestern. And then you get here. So then I want you to tell the story about what happens the first day. <laughs> okay, you go check in your room. <clears throat> Got my little trunk, my luggage. I arrive at campus. Oh, this, I'm in Willard Hall. Okay, nice. Okay, old building. I see roaches. I don't like this, but okay. Uh, it's because all that ivy on the walls outside. Uh, and I go to my assigned room. And there's a white girl standing in the door. And I said, excuse me, I'd like to bring my things in here. And she looked at me. She said, I'm not rooming with no niggas. And I turned around. I said, well, where are they? <laughs> I said, oh, 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 excuse me. And I went to the house mother and said, I'd like a room to myself. Please. Wait, wait, I'm going to stop you right there. Mm -hmm. A lot of people in our community are... Um, triggered by that word what can you kind of explain your thought how bother me okay <laughs> but what but how that oh you were young ignorance okay i know i'm not a nigger as de derogatorily as she said well, it ain't got nothing to do with me it's her mind that's jacked up i don't need it i don't have time to explain it to her <laughs> i i don't need to teach thank you that's that's what, okay, you got it. I'm gonna go over here and we'll see how this nigga acts the rest of the year. <laughs> no, no, I, I, she, I just thought she was ignorant. New York, you don't call anybody a nigger cause it might be a Cuban and they will cut you. <laughs> no, we, I lived in a totally multiracial environment internationally multiracial environment and for somebody to call me a nigger i'm going what's wrong with them <laughs> I, what are you talking about so no it doesn't bother me it's ignorant and ignorance is as ignorant does now a, a lot of people when they are uh <clears throat> no one seeks to be a pioneer right no, so, no, no. They get shot in the back. <laughs> so, so from that day forward, uh, little did this person know you would uh, just by being in the right place and and at the right time, great energy. He didn't know me. <laughs> <laughs> what what happened? it her because it, you were recently honored for the takeover of the bursar's office, um, the great. Uh, Brother Malcolm said, "A lot of times we're, we're not out we're not outnumbered while organized. Can you walk us through 
the scheme or the plan to take over the bursar's office and what it was. Okay. 50, I guess one years ago now, Northwestern University had a population of about 130 black people <laughs> on campus, 5,000 people, students altogether. When my class, when I went in, in 66, there were 36 of us. So we were noticeable, but we weren't, there was no place to gather and be comfortable in our culture. So we were individuals and there were a couple of people who had come with uh, friends from Chicago and they were grouped up. Um, but when I first got to Northwestern, the person, the first black man that I met, <laughs> I married. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was my counselor and, and we hit it off. Um, so I was hooked up the whole time that I was in college. So I didn't look for a social group. Plus the fact that I was working. I started modeling in New York when I was in Chicago. So I would go back and forth between classes and on off days and do modeling. So I was a busy girl. So I didn't really need to congregate anywhere, but I understood what they were lacking. <laughs> and we were not informed about what was going to happen. We were told, okay, enough is enough. On this day at four in the morning, I want, we were told, you women line up here. Other people were told, you line up here. Other people were told, you, and it was potted. They, they, it's some kind of military term that they said, the head never told everybody else what the whole goal was. And we just knew, follow this person at this time. And we all said, yeah, let's go. And the morning we got there, we walked to the building. There was nothing going on. We went inside. Our leaders went in and asked all of the women who were working in there, the bursar's office, where the only computer on campus was and where all the money was transacted at the university. They walked in and they asked all the women to leave, take their stuff with them. We were not going to hurt them. And we started going through a, ro a revolving door and we just went in. There had to be, oh, I guess 60 or 80 of us who got in there and we sat down. And I had called my mother and I said, I think there's gonna be some kind of something going on on campus. So uh, I think we're gonna do a sit-in or something. And my mother said, just let me know if you need any bail money. <laughs> That's my mom. Right, right. I, I was cool. I was in there and cool. I found out two years ago when we had our 50th celebration that some people's mamas were not happy with it. They were getting ready to come down there and get their child out of school and say, you crazy dude, what are you doing? <laughs> and I didn't have that problem. So we stayed in there. I think we were in there about 36 hours while our leaders negotiated with the university. And we were blessed in that 
the white kids who were radicals at the time, the SDS, um, decided to assist us. And they sat on the steps in front of the school so that the cops wouldn't storm the place. So they were only asking for African-American studies and more professors and, and something that was <laughs> applicable to our culture. Right. So it was not like we were demanding that uh, the school turn over the archives to us. Hey, we wanted a place to gather. We wanted the Black House. And we got all of our demands. And from that point on, there were now Black Studies programs. And we had some fabulous professors um, that came in to do Black Studies and Black Art and it was it was liberating for me. It was just a wonderful environment to be in. Wow, that's amazing! But it wasn't over. So you? you no, did. it's never over. No. It's still not over. So you you then become the first African American woman to cover uh, Glamour magazine. Yeah, that was after I was the first black homecoming queen at Northwestern Black. University. I don't even know how that happened. So they, they still can't tell me how that happened. But I think it has to do with um, math since there were four white girls and one and me. Right. And the white girls split it up and I won. And, uh, I didn't want to be there. <laughs> you had had uh, another event happen during. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. What was What was that experience like? Well, the, when uh, it, it was a weird experience, I didn't know what a homecoming queen was. My roommates kind of put me up uh, to enter it because I was modeling and I had a picture that they sent in and I was chosen to be on the court. Um, at that time though, my uh, boyfriend had graduated and he was playing for the farm team for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And homecoming weekend, he was going to be playing a game that I wanted to go see in Pittsburgh. And so I'm ready to go for the weekend. And I said, oh, no, no, no. We have to, you have to be here Friday for the parade. And you have to have a white gown, they told me on Wednesday. That I had to have a white gown on Friday. I'm a seamstress. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll whip me up a white gown. So I'm riding on the float. And we go to the top of a hill somewhere. I don't even know where this hill is anymore. <laughs> it was an oblivion. I'm going, let's get this over with so I can get on the plane and get to Pittsburgh. Um, <clears throat> so we're standing there and the president walks up and they had a pep rally. They had voted all day and I was working, so I didn't vote. I came back, my girlfriends hadn't voted. I'm going, oh, yeah, good. I got to get out of here. Um, so the name was announced. And I looked at the girl next to me because I thought they had called her name. And she elbowed me and said, that's you. I said, what? <laughs> really putting a crimp in my style here. And uh, they gave me roses, and the president walked up to me with such disgust on his face, the little short little man, oh, oh Lord. And he had this little crown of yellow roses. 
and he put it up on my head and he says, I have to hold this here to take till they take pictures. And he did like that. And then he turned and he walked away as did everybody else. And I'm going, well, what now? <laughs> and somebody finally came up to me and said, oh, you're supposed to go down to Scott Hall because there was an auditorium full of alumni who were supposed to be introduced to the homecoming court. So I hobbled on down in my little white gown and was backstage with these <laughs> four women, three of them consoling one who was bawling her eyes out. And I said, hey, you want this? I'll give it to you. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I don't need it. I don't want it. You really want this thing that bad? I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> and they just ignored me. Well, they started one by one being introduced and being backstage, you can hear the audience and you hear the applause after each girl's name is called. And all four of them went out and got there. And now the queen and I walked out there. It was dead silence. I said, oh, okay. And I picked up my little gown and I walked on back to the dorm. <laughs> But what do you, what do you say to people that say, you know what, Daphne, maybe you should have transferred and went to an HBCU if they go where you're celebrated. Why would you stay at a school like that? What would what would you say to people? I didn't know enough about HBCUs at the time. What I knew about HBCUs was the uh, myth that they weren't as good as a top ten university. I didn't let my son go to Northwestern. He went to an HBCU. <laughs> and so and I, I had no idea what an HBCU could do for my culture. I was not that black. I was an international person. Right, right. I grew up in society of mixed cultures. I didn't know how black I was till I got to Northwestern. So you, there was a, a pretty close-knit community with, um, within the campus uh, of Black students. Um, how would you compare that to the movie of, you know, Once Upon a Time when, when we were colored, right? Because th it was kind of that same way. What, and, and what attracted you to that role? The role in Once Upon a Time when we were colored? Yes. My husband gave me the job. He was directed. <laughs> I was sleeping with the producer. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I had a very small part because what I was doing was behind the scenes, mm -hmm. taking care of a whole lot of stuff. That was quite an adventure. Um, his first directorial debut and 82 speaking parts and uh, beautiful, beautiful movie. I'm so proud of him for very, that. Very um, but um, it was a tight community, but it was almost the Chicago bunch of kids the out-of-town bunch of kids, the kids who were locals. So the Black community wasn't all this. There were almost two factions. There were the really radical Black students, militants, and then there were the dorks. <laughs> there were the, just us. So there was, we all respected each other, but there wasn't no hanging around. You go to the Black house, you better be playing cards or you know 
I didn't know nothing about playing cards. So that's not something I did. And since I was hooked up, I got married my junior year. I mean, I, I never got involved with the larger community on a steady basis. I knew them, loved them, respected them. I had some, one year I had three black roommates. That was great, but very different for Northwestern. Speaking of togetherness um, and, and community, I think that's one of the things that uh, the Fresh Prince gave us, right? The, the, mm. the of being together um, with family. Now, initially, your thoughts on the role are pretty interesting. Um, you were leaving, uh, you and your husband, rather, were leaving L.A. because you guys had been doing all this work. And, and then the role opened up. Well, it was an audition. It was an audition. Someone they said, we want you to audition for this um, sitcom with a rapper. And I said, oh, no, I, I can't deal with no rapper. Thank you. I'm going to Virginia. We just bought a farm. I'm going to play. I'm tired. <laughs> we had done four series back to back. So um, we left. And I'm watching TV when the season came on and I saw this cute little, I said, oh, that's the first, oh, that's so cute. What changed your mind about the show, though? What, what was it that kind of changed your perspective on the show? The characters. Okay. The characters and the, the camaraderie and the humor. I thought it was the cutest little show. <laughs> so three years later, I had done a couple of different things in L.A., um, in the interim, I did a show, did a couple of shows that didn't go past the pilot, but I had a good time. Uh, <laughs> and they called and said, I uh, want you to come in and read for this, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I said, oh, I'll be right there. <laughs> and I was out there for about two and a half weeks auditioning. They auditioned every female in the United States. <laughs> every time I went to a call back, these people I've never seen these people before in my life they they interviewed a whole lot of women but I went back four times and the last two or three times that I was uh, auditioning I got to audition with James Avery and we hit it off I mean just immediately I fell in love with this guy and we just went with it and I think that is the chemistry that we had was probably what got me that job. Um, they had respect for the work that I had done previously. They knew of my work, uh, but I had never done a comedy before a live audience, which is weird because I did WKRP twice and they shoot before a live audience. But the shows that we did that I was in were shot film style because of the nature of the show. So I never got to stand before an audience and perform. Right. Not since the Cherry Lane Theater when my daddy saw me. Oh. Um, so I was scared. But, but, but one episode that everyone always talks about is Papa's got a brand new excuse. Yeah. Uh, now my father was always around and his father was always around. Mm -hmm. um, can, can you re recount your reaction to that episode um, and, and what it was like watching it? And, and was it emotional for you too? It is always emotional. 
even when I watch it now, it's emotional. It was <clears throat> a beautifully written show. Ben Vereen was fabulous. And I mean, he had been on Broadway and we just, we knew his work was so genuine and so wonderful. And when he left the last time and Will was in there with James, we were all in the back crying. Because it was one of the first times that Will had finally allowed himself to not perform. He actually got into feeling it. And I mean, he was the fabulous, hardest working man I have ever seen in life. And very open to learning. He's the curious, like nosy, like me. He's a curious, curious person. So he gets to do a whole lot of things because he's curious to live his life. And I just think that's a wonderful thing for him. Um, but when you create something like that, are, are you aware of the impact it's going to have? I mean, I remember watching the episode with a friend of mine and his father wasn't around. And I remember looking over at him. And even though my father and my grandfather were around, looking at him and kind of understanding his, his reaction to the episode was, was but, but when you're creating something like that, do you know the impact it's going to have? Um, we kind of did because of the way it was written. It was written to say what it said and to show the emptiness, the, the pain suffered by the ones who are left, not the ones who leave, the ones who are left. And it was just so beautifully done that it's very, very moving to me. Another project that you were in, mm -hmm. uh, Jacqueline and Jill. Yeah. Uh, what was so attractive about that role um, to you? And, 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 and can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, that was written and directed by the lead. <laughs> and we had worked together before. I had played her mother. I was a judge and a, a little, I think it was a film short that she did. And I knew her. I mean, we'd hung out in L.A., and she came to Virginia to shoot it because of the contacts that she had here and the opportunity to work with um, some people who were here. And she took me to dinner and said, would you play my mother in this thing? And I read the script and I said, I'd love to play your mother. It, had, it was so well written. And I got to have a lot of different colors and some humor and some pathos and, and some shame. And it was a lovely, lovely part to play. And if and the thing I loved about that project is, you know, if anyone in your family has gone through um, addiction of any sort, it, you know how tough it can be. Why do you think denial was such a major component 
in order to deliver what, what that message was about the movie. I think her point was that in our culture, sometimes our families feel shame about it. And as our grandmothers and our mothers told us when we were young, it's our business. You don't take our business out in the street. Don't be talking about what goes on here out there. Right. So we are all kind of conditioned <laughs> to, oh, no, 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 that's, that's our business. That has nothing to do with you. And in order to deal with addiction, you have to admit that somebody's addicted. Right. And you have to seek help, which means reaching outside the family. And that is a very hard thing to do. Hopefully it's getting easier knowing that that little bit of shame that you may feel will go away with the success of a person when they get their life back. Well said, well said. Um, you know, and, and, and so the other thing that you were in, uh, the other project that you were in, the TV show, uh, Frank's Place. Um, mm, my heart. It, 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 it ended before it, first of all, the, the, the show was ahead of its time. It, it captured uh, New Orleans, French quarters, feel, a bunch of culture, elegance, class, a lot of things that were not portrayed for us at that time. Can you, can you talk about that project? It's my husband's, I guess, tour de force. I mean, it, it was just, the most magnificent television show that I've been a part of because of because it showed the melange of our culture. We had been so, I guess TV programming had been so statically showing you were either in the projects or you were uh, highfalutin. There was no color differences. There were no nuances to black culture. And in New Orleans, it's nuanced city. The way we interact with each other, the, the differences in our skin tones, there were so many stories. And he and his writing buddy, who uh, was a guy who created and produced WKRP in Cincinnati, a guy named Hugh Wilson, Tim and Hugh were just magic together. But it was the first time that Hollywood had allowed a half hour sitcom to be shot film style. And it didn't have a laugh track. It was the first show that had no laugh track. So, well, it'll be funny. It's a comedy, but you decide when to laugh. <laughs> we're not gonna tell you. Right, right. And they didn't like the falseness. I don't like the falseness of of that canned laughter. It just talk about that a little bit in, in creating something. Can you talk about does it take away from the authenticity of it? What what is it about it? About the laughter? Yes. Laugh track? It's artificial. It sounds artificial. It sounds like you're too stupid to know what's funny. And I it's annoying because if you listen to them while you're watching the television, if you focus on the laugh track, it's the same laugh throughout the whole show. There's no level differences. 
It's the same lady laughing out loud, and you'll hear it every time the laugh track comes, and it sounds the same every time. It gets old fast. Mm -hmm. I don't like it, and um, it keeps me from watching half-hour comedies. Wow. You know, and I definitely feel like I wish, you know, at that time that there were more show, more shows uh, like Frank's Place um, and, and just showing us in a different way. Um, you then, um, even more recently, you go on to, um, you, you were in Harriet, um, which was, uh -huh. was long overdue. Uh, you, you made a comment before um, about just the production and, and who was actually involved in that project. Um, why is it so important for some, for, for, for some of these stories to be told um, by a certain group of people? We have to tell our own stories. And if you're going to tell a story about a Black woman there should be somebody in the upper echelons who's a black woman <laughs> because there are nuances that are not captured if you're not a black woman. Sorry, it's no fault of them. It just doesn't have the flavor. And this project was produced by a black woman and directed by a black woman and the star was the baddest ass black woman that I have met in a long time. I adore Cynthia Rigo. I mean, she is just phenomenal. Her commitment to her craft and, and her sense of style and her focus and her, I mean, we'd be sitting in the tent just laughing and carrying on between takes and then it's time to go to work. We are working. And I really loved the small part that I got to play, I felt like I was being honored, being given this role. So it's very close to my heart. Um, but what, what would you say to, you know, sometimes in, in conversations, you know, people in our community, they grow tired of the civil rights movies or they grow tired of, this, of, of, of the slavery movies. What do you say to those people? Because those stories do need to be told. Um, but what do you say that people say, we need to stop making those? You know, we were kings too, which is true. Or we were queens too, which is true. But what do you say to people who grow tired of, of those movies that depict us in a certain way? Um, I would not consider this movie a slave movie because we did not see anybody being be beaten. We didn't see anybody being abused. We saw a freedom movie, a freedom and tenacity movie. I mean, you have to have some big kahunis to go back to a situation where they could kill you if you cross the line and go get your people. She needed we needed to see the strength that is inherent in our survival. Folks today have to recognize that Black people have survived for 400 years with dignity because of our inbred humanity. We could have at any point while we's taking care of y'all, <laughs> Let y'all throw. Right. 
didn't mean we accepted our entrapment, but it means that we knew to survive was the point. If you survive this, you can get to the next and they can survive a little more. It's now time to survive again. We have to get through this horrible, I say fascist regime that is running this country. And people need to recognize the value of every human being in here. Those crazy folks up there don't know that they're all immigrants. How did his daddy get here? Come on. <laughs> How did his wife get here? They're immigrants. Right. <laughs> we were not immigrants. We are now, there's some. We were captured. We were brought here. But we survived and we helped in the most specific ways to build this country. And for you not to recognize that our value is the same as anybody else's value, it's time for a check. And I think the Z generation or whatever generation this is, more power to you. I love the protests. Don't forget to deal with policy. Make a change, not just a statement. Make a change. I'm counting on you because I don't have the energy anymore <laughs> to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm with you. I'm with you. We got to make change here. And no. the first thing is you got to vote. I mean, you got to vote. You got to know Black Lives Matter. Give that value a vote. Now you now this is I only have a couple more things for you. Um, now you you know shows like uh, Simon and Simon, um, Frank's Place, WKRP. Um, you know you you've written books. You know you're uh, a clothing designer. How important is it to to display all of our talents? Because we're so used to saying you know if you're not playing a sport or singing. Uh, you know, they're, they're just so used to pick, putting us in a box and kind of depict, depicting us in a certain way. But there are other things that we can do. But how important is it to, to put all of our talents on display? Individually, when we are born, we're given gifts from whatever you call God. These gifts need to be honored to manifest your respect for whoever gave it to you whether it's God or Gandhi, it, whoever you believe is your giver of life, they gave you gifts. And if you don't honor those gifts by exploring them, by expressing them, by sharing them, by finding a purpose for them, you have wasted the gift and you dishonor your God. I have so many gifts. I was so blessed when I was born. And the way I was brought up was so blessed, even in the hardship of it. It didn't seem like a hardship 
when it was happening because it was just life. And life just is. Good, bad, it just is. It's what you make of it. And if you are given gifts that you keep under a bushel, you are shaming your God. So I have to express these. I, I can't not express all these gifts that he's given me. And I have the privilege of benefiting <laughs> from these gifts. What could be better than that? Ms. Daphne, um, it certainly was a pleasure to speak with you today. Um, where can we follow you? Where can we follow your work? Where can we buy your cookbooks? Oh, I'm real easy. Daphne Maxwell Reed.com. Everything I do is on that website. It'll catch you up on all my little note cards and books and designs and adventures and there and on Instagram. Miss Daphne 13 or Daphne Reed. I got a couple of pages. So because right now I'm making masks. So I spend my days making masks. Make masks. On Instagram. <laughs> there you go. Miss Daphne, it certainly was a pleasure. Thank it was you for a your delight. Time. A delight. Thank yeah. you so much for asking me. Absolutely. And we look forward to your next work and your projects, and we will certainly be following you. Thank you. Good. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.